That was tremendous. What wonderful words we sing. I find myself singing those songs and hearing us sing those songs together and hoping we just get a glimpse of the meaning and understand and feel just a, a fraction of uh, all the meaning in those in those words that we sing. Would you turn with me to Numbers chapter 22? If you're wondering why I'm up here instead of Pastor Joel, Pastor Joel is on grandparent duty. So um, he just took his, he's been watching his grandkids for the week, and he took them back down to Florida. So supposed to be on his way back, so please, please pray for him. Uh, and Diane to have safety. Numbers chapter 22. Before I begin at all, um, let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the grace that you have given to us. Thank you for bringing us through this, even this storm that uh, just rolled through. Uh, Lord, I pray for those who are uh, more severely affected by it, uh, maybe even some in our own midst that I am not aware of. Lord, I pray for your grace. I pray for your help. I pray for us to come together and love one another. Lord, I pray for your grace this morning. You alone are worthy of all honor and praise and glory and all of our hope and all of our faith and all of our affection. And Lord, I pray that you would use this time, this morning, to draw our hearts to you that we would love you better, that we would trust you more, and that we would even fear you and honor you with a greater respect and a greater reverence than we have coming in this morning. Lord, I pray for your help. I pray for your word to be clear and to speak to our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, Numbers chapter 22, we're going to be going through several chapters here. But we're going to be covering basically one one story and then going on to a couple other passages to explain it and talk about the application. But uh, this is the story of a man named Balaam. Just by show of hands, how many of you guys are familiar? I'm not sure when I picked this, I wasn't sure how many people are familiar with the story of Balaam. Okay, not as many as I thought. So this is going to be more of a, uh, a fresh story for us. But I thought that may be the case. Um, Balaam is a man in the Old Testament, obviously, uh, we're introduced to him in the book of Numbers, and he's a man that was well known throughout the Old Testament history and in New Testament times. In fact, his name became somewhat of a byword, somewhat of a um, an infamous name because of the things that we are going to study. I would compare it uh, somewhat to the name Judas. You guys hear the name Judas and instantly a whole story comes to mind. And um, if someone uses Judas as an illustration, maybe a preacher's preaching, maybe I'm preaching or Pastor Joel, and they, they, they're explaining what not to do and, and certain things, uh, ungodly characteristics, and then they say, like Judas, and you, oh yeah, okay, I get what you mean. And a whole story comes to mind and illustrates the point. Balaam was very much that character for uh, the people in biblical times, even the New Testament, and I'm sure into the early church. <clears throat> this is a very well-known passage from the Old Testament, and one I think we would do well to learn from and we can grow from this morning. So I pray that the Lord makes this useful. I believe it will also be challenging for us. I pray that we leave here thinking deeply about the things that we discover from the life of Balaam and the rest of the Scripture and what it teaches us about Balaam. 
So I am not going to actually read the first three chapters that are that are up here. I'm going to go, I'm going to go uh, Numbers 22 through Numbers 25. We're going to read part of Numbers 25, but I'm going to summarize the first three chapters there for you. Um, when we come to Numbers chapter 22, Israel is in the wilderness. And we know why they're in the wilderness, right? The Lord brought them to the promised land with many signs and wonders and miracles, and they refused to enter. And they said, we're going home. And the Lord at that point said, I'm done with you. I'm going to start a new nation with Moses. That's it. And the Lord, uh, Moses interceded for the people, and God had mercy on the people. But the, he said, you're going to be here for 40 years until... Uh, the older generation has died off. He said, your children, the younger generation, they will inherit the promise that I had for you. And they are getting, I believe, close to the end of that time wandering in the wilderness. God has provided for them all of these years. If you go back to the chapters just before, God has just accomplished great military victories through the people of Israel. They've just defeated uh, Og, king of Bashan, and Sion, king of the Amorites, who had come out against them as they were there. And, of course, the Lord protected them. The Lord was with them. And the defeat was so stunning, and the defeat was so impressive that the nations all around took notice again of this wandering family of people in the wilderness. And so we come to chapter 22, and Moab, the king of Moab, his name is Balak. I'll probably mix up Balaam and Balak several times. Please forgive me as I uh, work my way through the story. But Balak, king of Moab, goes to the elders of Midian, another nearby country, and says, we've got to do something about this. But there was no way he was going to enter into a military conflict with these people who so evidently had God on their side. There was no way he was going to make the same mistake as Sion, king of the um, Amorites. And so what was his plan? If God is with them, I need to get God to curse them. Well, we know of a prophet nearby. His name is Balaam, and he was known for uh, for his curses and his judgment on the people. In fact, it's very interesting, just in my study, last-minute study this morning, uh, in 1967, they actually discovered this genuine, obviously we knew this because it was in the scripture, but even the secular world acknowledges this was a real man who wrote prophecies um, against people and was known for specifically the prophecies of impending judgment and impending doom. I thought that was, that was really amazing because a lot of the stories we will see is something the world would find pretty unbelievable as we go through, but it is verified by by history, and actually we have some of his prophecies, uh, not this at all, but um, they're very interesting, and he was a very interesting man, and his idea of God was very interesting. You can tell from the fragments that they have found. But anyway, this is Balaam, and this is what they hire Balaam to do. We curse God's people. God will be against them, and then they will be destroyed. So he sends messengers. Balak sends messengers and a promise of wealth and prominence to Balak if he will come and curse the people of God. Well, Balak says, uh, Balaam goes to uh, the Lord and says, uh, can I curse them? And the Lord says, no, I don't intend to curse these people. I intend to bless them, tell them no. So he goes back to the messengers and says, no. The Lord says, I can't do that. And so they go back to Balak. And Balak is just dumbfounded. And so he says, send, I'll probably, he sends more prominent people to go try to encourage him to come, more promise of wealth and prominence. And they go again. So Balaam goes back to the Lord a second time and says, well, can I go with him? And he says, go, but I intend to bless them so you 
Only do what I tell you. So he gets on his donkey, which becomes very famous in Old Testament history, and um, he gets on his donkey and begins to ride towards uh, Moab and Balak, the king of Moab. And on the way, the Lord uh, sends his angel to kill Balaam, to kill him. Three times, the Lord stands in his way, sword drawn to kill him, the angel of the Lord. And the donkey, this is amazing, the donkey sees what this prophet, they called in that day a seer, did not see. The donkey sees what the prophet did not see. Um, and turns out of the way. Three times he beats the donkey, and um, because the donkey's not going, the donkey's taking him around. And finally, the third time, there is nowhere for the donkey to go. And he just lays down right there. And again, he, for the third time, he beats this poor animal that's just saved his life uh, three times. And the Lord actually gives the donkey the voice of a man, and a man, the donkey rebukes the prophet who is known to speak for God and believes he is the man that speaks for God. And God speaks through his dumb animal and rebukes him. Um, see, he, the donkey saw what he could not see, and the donkey um, confounded him with wisdom he could not refute. And then he looks up and sees the angel of the Lord, falls on his face, and worships. And says, I will go back. The angel tells him, I, that donkey just saved your life three times. I came here to kill you because um, of what you're doing. And he says, well, I'll go back. I will go back if you want me to. He says, no, go. We'll come back to all this later. He tells him to go on, but again, only do what I tell you to do. And so he does that. And he gets there to, to Balak. And just to make a long story short, Balak gives him three different opportunities. He sacrifices animals, uh, seven altars. It's a big deal. Uh, gives him an opportunity to see the people of Israel from three different vantage points. And each time, Balaam comes and he blesses the people of God instead of cursing them. Why? Balak gave him three opportunities to bless the people he was trying to curse. I don't know. But after the third one, Balaam, just for good measure, gives him a fourth blessing. So four blessings in three different, three different locations. And that is where chapter 24 ends. If you want to turn to chapter 25. That's where we find uh, Balaam. The last verse says, Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place. And Balak also went his way. So... Um, again, why did Balak not kill him at this point? I think we'll find out later. But it's always puzzled me. In fact, this story has puzzled me. Um, this story may have puzzled you. If you've read it carefully before, I'm sure this story has puzzled you. What is the Lord doing? Why is the Lord saying, don't go? Go. I'm going to kill you for going. No, go ahead and go. What is the Lord? It almost puts the Lord... In a bad light. It seems like the Lord can't see this guy just is trying to do the right thing when we seem to see it very plainly. That this guy's just trying to do what the Lord wants and the Lord's twisting around in knots. Um, and then he does, seems to prove his innocence. He does exactly what he was told to do. And that's the end of the story. Now, if you're familiar at all with the rest of the references to Balaam throughout the scripture, they do not speak highly of Balaam. If you were to end right here, 
and not put together some of the other small references that are there. We often miss. We just don't read the Old Testament carefully enough. Um, you would wonder again, what is the Lord doing? Why is he considered such a bad guy? We'll come back to that. Let's read chapter 25. Would you turn with me to Numbers chapter 25? I'm reading from the New American Standard. So if you want to read along in the Pew Bibles, um, you can follow along with me. While Israel, Israel remained in Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, obviously one of the main false gods that tempted the people in that day. And the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then, behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him, a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Now the name of the man slain of Israel was, uh, who was slain with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, the leader of his father's household among the Simeonites. The name of the woman, uh, Midianite woman who was slain was Cosby, the son of Zer, daughter of Zer, who was the head of the people of a father's household in Midian. Some of you are saying, that's why I don't read the Old Testament. Um, but we need to. Um, we need to think how God thinks. We need to be confronted with God's actions, his attitudes, um, his working among his people. Therefore, our instruction which is actually the title of my message, written down for our instruction. I'll come back to that, why I chose that title in a second. So, what just happened? And why did I read these two stories? Well, they're actually not two stories. They're one story. This is the end, not actually the end, this is the middle of the story of Balaam. You see, Balaam, if you were to go to Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, God calls his people to take vengeance on the Midianites. You can write that down go look later. Numbers chapter 31, verse 16. And he says why. Um, and not just to take vengeance on them, but also on another individual that he names who lived at that time among the Midianites. Who was that individual? That individual was Balaam, who was at that time probably living like a king, 
in the midst of the people that he had helped to tempt and try to overthrow the people of God. And um, the, what it says is that Balaam taught Balak how to do this. Why did the people of Moab and Midian all of a sudden wander into the camp of the people they were trying to destroy? Why do you all of a sudden see these people going off with the, the ladies of uh, Moab and Midian? Why this fall into idolatry? How did this happen? Who gave them this idea? Was this something that just happened spontaneously? No. Balaam directly instigated this because Balaam, with his knowledge of God, and again, I don't know, he's a little bit of a baffling character, kind of like the Magi we, we talk about at Christmas. Who were these people who had a knowledge of God, who came to worship the Messiah, who, who were not Jewish, and where was their knowledge of God, and what was their knowledge of God? We don't know. But um, we do know that he spoke for God, we do know that the Lord heard this. And what a preacher. Uh, a man who actually had the words of God put into his mouth. In fact, the fourth one he threw in there just for good measure. The fourth blessing is where we find the prophecy for the star of day, not star of David, <laughs> for the, the star of Bethlehem that the Magi followed. Again, these stories kind of connecting um, to Jesus. Where is, the, where is the prophecy of this star that, that would arise and, and lead them to the, to the ruler of Israel? It's actually Balaam who speaks that prophecy. He spoke for God. But with his knowledge of God and his understanding of who God was and God's holiness, the one thing that he knew for sure was that God would not tolerate sin among his people. And the only way to overthrow the people of God was to get the people of God to turn on God, and that his justice would require that he would bring the judgment against them, which he did, 24,000 people. And I did, this story, is the other one has a lot more details, the first part of it, 22 through 24, a lot more details, a little bit more story like this one's just kind of abrupt, there's a lot going on, you don't have the details that your mind starts to ask if you're looking carefully at it, you don't have all the details, it's like this happened, this happened, this happened. There must have been an extended period of time, uh, initially at least. Um, we're told that it, it appears that what the Lord told Moses to do, again, I don't have that many details here to work with, but it appears that they actually didn't obey the Lord. The Lord says, go destroy all the leader, all the elders and leaders. Um, Moses goes to all the leaders and says, you go find everyone who's guilty and you guys take care of that. And it, it appears that none of that was actually happening, but that the Lord had broken out in a plague against the people. Maybe some of that happened, maybe half-hearted, I don't know. But there's no indication that anybody was actually killed by Moses or any of the people there. But the plague has broken out and everybody is in the middle of this judgment that is sweeping across the people of Israel. They're weeping, they're at the tent of meeting, pleading for God's mercy. And in the midst of that setting, this man boldly and brazenly brings this Midianite woman in clear defiance to the Lord, the thing that had caused all of this to happen, and he took her straight to his tent and we know um, what he was doing. And Phineas, with God's jealousy, went and struck them both. And that event turned away the wrath of God against the people. And later on in verse 11, he says, Phineas doing this is what stayed his wrath and kept him from destroying the people 
there. In the past, it's been Moses a couple times at Mount Sinai when he was there for 40 days and 40 nights and they, they went to idolatry. It had happened again at the edge of the promised land. When they refused to go in, Moses interceded for them and God had mercy. Here, Moses is there and Aaron is there and the other high priest, Aaron's son, is there, but the youngest of all of them. And young people, I've mentioned this to a lot of you before, but uh, actually from this very story, um, don't just look for those older than you to be jealous for the Lord and zealous for his word. It was the youngest of all of them that stood up for the Lord. It was the youngest of all of them. The grandson and grandnephew of Moses, grandson of Aaron, the priest, that accomplished this deliverance in Israel. Um, so, what do we do with all of this? Um, what we don't do is you don't go out and slay sinners. Um, that's not, the, in fact, Matthew Henry had a good note on that, that he was acting in a governmental role in doing this. Um, the priests were the governors of Israel under the Lord. The Lord was king. The priest ruled under king. So this was a civil uh, judgment um, comparable to a civil magistrate acting. Um, so what do we do with this? Um, if you would turn with me, I don't know if you guys caught this last week. If you guys caught this, Pastor Joel will be very proud of you. But in one of his applications, he quoted the title of my sermon um, in one of his applications. Anyone know where that is? Some of you may know from 1 Corinthians 10. Who said that? All right. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, if you, t- you don't have to turn there with me because I'm going to be very brief there. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10. I'm sorry. Second Corinthians, is it? No, it's first Corinthians. First Corinthians is longer than I thought. First Corinthians, verse eight. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Sound familiar? Um, Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. That actually happens just before this passage in the book of Numbers. Chapter 21, I believe. Now these things happen to them as an example. And they are written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So this passage... Whoops. Forgot to give you the pictures. Um, this passage was written for us. It's referenced by Jude, Peter, Paul, and John. This is Paul's reference to it. He doesn't mention Balaam, but he mentions the event. And he said it was written for our instruction. And sometimes I think we have too big it. We read those stories like, wow, glad I don't live back then. I'm just going to stick with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Psalms and Proverbs and uh, things like that. But I'm going to stay away from that because I don't know what to do with it. Well, we're told exactly what to do with it. This was written for our instruction so that we would not follow their example. It tells us something about God. Now let's turn to Second Peter chapter 3. Or you don't have to turn. I got it there for you. Sin of the sin of Balaam. What was the sin of Balaam, this character? 
obviously, you could probably put together a good list of um, things just from what we've talked about. But listen to what Second Peter says. And he's talking here about false teachers. So he's talking about false teachers, and he uses Balaam as that exclamation point, that illustration. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So what did he do? We could go to, we're actually going to go to Revelation where Jesus mentions this as well. But what is it that Balaam did? He taught the people to love, uh, the world. His love for the world spilled over into their love of the world. Here are three things that I've pulled out as warnings worse. Balaam, his words were much more innocent than his motives. His words were very innocent in that story, right? Wasn't that perplexing for us? He's saying, Lord, I'll do it. I won't go. I'll do whatever you want. I'll say whatever you want. He seems to have said whatever the Lord wanted. And yet, we learned something recently. Going, And I think many of us knew this as well. But we were challenged with where does God look? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now you look back at the story and you see the Lord knew exactly where Balaam was going in his heart. Although his words were very innocent, very compliant. Um, but his motives were not, and it was revealed. He led God's people to sin and not to Christ. The end result of the ministry of this man and the people we read about in Second Peter, then we're still called to be on guard against today, is those whose ministry would lead us to sin. We live in a day where we're not just influenced by, I mean, this is a warning to me. This is something I have to take into account as I stand before you and try to give you the word of God that my life and the things that I, my example and the net result of my ministry is pushing you to Christ and not in some way saying great things, but the net result is you love the world. And I have set that example and taught you to do it. That would be the danger for me. But we're in an age where we are influenced by people far beyond the scope of the elders and teachers at our church. We are, va- we are influenced by a lot of people out there in cyberspace, around the world. Who do we listen to? And we need to take the warnings against this teacher and apply them to who we listen to. He valued and treasured, he valued the treasures of the world over God's reward. We could probably pull out a lot more things, but His words were innocent than his motives. He led God's people to sin and not to Christ. And he valued the treasures of the world over God's reward. You notice how this unfolded. Balaam 
was faithful as long as it was profitable. This man did speak for God. His words were true. They were the words of God. They did come true thousands of years later as God intended. And yet he was false and an unbeliever and a man who did not know God rightly. Knew of God, knew about God, but uh, you cannot read Jude and Second Peter and what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2 and think that Balaam was a believer or that the people following his example are. So, this is happening today. And if you were in, some of you were in our Sunday school class on holiness in the home that we did. Those are up on the internet. And I would encourage you for further discussion to uh, go back and not dis- or discussion or uh, just further study. If you weren't there, we talk in a lot more detail about some of the things going on today. But here's just a little snippet of some of the things we've talked about there. Over 40 million Americans are regular visitors to explicit adult websites, and I think it's worse than that. But over 40 million Americans are regular visitors to these websites. 11 is the average age that a child is exposed to this kind of material. 94%, that's almost 100%, that's almost everyone. We'll see it by the time, um, this is referring to pornography, by age 14. 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view pornography on a regular basis. That's almost 70%. That's almost three out of four. Church-going men. I'm speaking to a bunch of church-going men. And over 50% of pastors on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults, 18 to 24 years old, A full three-quarters of them actively search out this kind of material. 33% of women age 25, women, so we're taking a little bit of a shift from where we normally think, 33% of women age 25 view it regularly. 87% of Christian women have watched, 87% of Christian women have watched explicit adult material. Um, Another way it's happening that's only one area of sin. That's only one area of sin. You see how pervasive that is in our culture. But here are others. The idolatry of materialism in America is a real thing that we are in great danger of. The idolatry of pleasure, the idolatry of sports, um, A lot of football teams playing today, first time this year. The idolatry of self, the new morality. Um, Again, we could unpack all of those. I think most of you understand what I mean by going through all of those. I don't have time to unpack those. But ways in which we have both succumbed to the sensual pleasures and the idols of our country. 
We are being enticed to sin with pleasures that we are unaccustomed to dealing with. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. Those are our worst enemies that draw us to sin. Do we think that way? The worst enemy you have, the worst enemy you have is the temptation, the things, whatever they might be, where from wherever they come, that tempt you to sin. For that is the greatest mischief any man can do us. If Balak had drawn out his armed men against the children of Israel to fight them, Israel had bravely resisted and no doubt been more than conquerors. But now that he sends his beautiful women among them and invites them to his idolatrous feasts, the Israelites basely yield and are shamefully overcome. Those are smitten with his harlots that could not be smitten with his sword. Note, we are more endangered by the charms of a smiling world than by the terrors of a frowning world. I hope that sinks in. And I hope that's our attitude. I hope that's the way we fight this. That's the way we must fight it. Um, This, I've been debating how much to go into because we could go into illustration after illustration. These may be farther out. They're statistics. They're out there. They're nameless and they're faceless. To me, this is not nameless and this is not faceless. Um, We talked some uh, about this passage uh, with Resolve a while back. And uh, I've mentioned it a couple times. But I just sat down going through this passage and, and thinking about this danger. And I could list 12 people very quickly that I know personally, that I knew closely, some that I worked with, some that I respected uh, very highly. Some, you could maybe see it coming. Others, you would have never had an idea whose lives are destroyed by sin, absolutely destroyed by the things that we're talking about. Some of you know this, but um, two years ago, two Aprils ago, when we took the youth to rethink, uh, a friend of mine committed suicide. And uh, it's a very long, very ugly story. But just to give you a couple of the details to tie that to this, um, he and his wife were uh, people that I went to school with. Sarah and I helped them move into their first home. When they got married right after us, um, they, he was a youth pastor at the time. He went on to be a pastor at several churches. We kept in contact over the years. We had some different bouts with things in ministry, and we could relate. We prayed for each other. Um, we were good friends. And uh, there's a lot to the story. But um, a few things you need to know about the story is that the wife had been having a long struggle uh, with pornography um, at home that he knew about and he allowed. I'm not sure about him. He always said he didn't. Um, she did. Um, they had a big move to a different church. And again, this was supposed to be behind them at this point. Uh, a big move to a different church. And a lot of struggles. They were further away from home and uh, were having a very difficult time. And she got a job outside the home, and she was around friends that were not a good influence. Again, there's nothing wrong with, with having friends uh, that are unbelievers, 
But these began to have a lot of sway over her thoughts. Uh, they were close friends, and their advice began to ring true to her, but it was very, very unbiblical. Um, in some trouble they were having, it was just difficult at home. They had a, um, a daughter with severe uh, learning disabilities, and she would just retreat to watch TV. One of the TV shows that she would watch was uh, Grey's Anatomy. And uh, when we, me and her husband, uh, were talking on the phone, he was like, Danny, this is um, having a big effect on her. Like it's, she started, that the themes in this show are resonating with her. Um, and I don't know what to do because I feel like if I tell her to stop, we're already having trouble. She's just going to go further from me. But, and that was a common thing. And um, she, uh, these continued on, and she ended up in a relationship with another lady, um, and then three ladies in about a three-month period of time. And in the process of all of that falling apart, my friend took his life at home with his children after a fight on the phone with his wife. That is the type of destruction that sin can bring. Um, it is deadly serious. Another friend of mine, and I just found out this week, I know there were issues as well, not as severe that I know of, but his marriage fell apart, and um, there was some severe sin issues there, not to the, um, again, I don't know the extent, I don't, I'm not as familiar. Um, but the end of the story is that um, I found out he's a false teacher at this point. He was a pastor friend of mine, a man I used to go witnessing with, share the gospel with, a man I was proud to be alongside of sharing the gospel with others and found out that he's now a full-blown prosperity teacher, um, completely different. In fact, he was saying that in the sermon I was listening to him preach. Um, very sad, very heartbreaking. Um, and these are very close to home for me. What about us? Could it be here? Could it be that some here, us, specifically those of us with any influence, everyone from mothers, fathers, Sunday school teachers, leaders, could it be that some here could express the same obedient language to God? You, you could read through the list in Romans and other passages of sins against which God hates. And you, oh yes, yes, I agree, I agree, I agree. And then you find out, um, or then later it becomes revealed that, no, actually deep down, your actions speak different than your words. You read it in the scripture like, oh yeah, like those things sound really bad and um, I wouldn't do that. But I allow this and this and this and this. Is the effect of your life one of drawing others to Christ-likeness or the world? Is the effect of your life one of drawing people to Christ-likeness or the world? I'm not saying teaching. Oh, that's essential and important. Because we know Balaam, in this context, Balaam's words were correct. It was his actions and his influence that were wrong. Do you inwardly love the reward of the world more than the reward that Christ offers? That was Balaam's problem, right? He was fine to stand up there in that mountain boldly, soldiers around him, and preach it and say it. But when Balak 
held the reward over here and said, you're not getting this. He found another way to get it. And it was his destruction and many of God's people. Have you allowed the influence of this spirit in our culture to lead you astray? Have you allowed the this is a, this is a we'll call it a spirit that is um, moving the spirit of the age, um, and is it leading us astray? Turn with me, please, to the book of Revelation. I've hinted that I was going to go here. We want to go to Jesus. We need to run from the mess to the Savior, right? Run from the mess to the Savior. But we need to hear what Jesus says about this, and Jesus specifically picks up this man's name in his rebuke. So would you notice, um, well, let's read it. In verse 12, to the angel, chapter Revelation 2, verse 12, to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you, have, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, my faithful one who is killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. You also have there some who, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Please catch this. Or else I am coming to you quickly. And I, Jesus speaking, will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus references the story of Balaam and the character. And he says, and first of all, I want to go through the whole passage. Um, he starts by encouraging them. They live in a place that the persecution must have been immense and severe. He calls it the place where Satan's throne dwells. And the commentaries that I've read say this refers most likely to the emperor worship, which started here in Pergamum. And Antipas was one of the first uh, people killed in Asia in that cult of the emperor worship for not worshiping the emperor to save his life. And the Lord says to this church, I see, I know, I care, I love you, I appreciate, I have noticed everything that you have done for my namesake, that you have held fast. That did not go by Christ. He loved his church and he encouraged them. But even this church that was so faithful, he is faithful to rebuke the sin they needed rebuked. And it is the sin of Balaam. In fact, they weren't teaching this. If you notice in the text, they weren't teaching this. They were merely allowing others to teach it. There was a faithful group there. But in the midst, there were those teaching this doctrine. And he says, I blame you for allowing this to happen among you. 
you need to repent or I am coming in judgment. My mind goes back to that story of Phineas and the way that he propitiated God's anger. You want to know what propitiation means? Let this story of Phineas come to your mind when you read 1 John and read that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. What does that big word mean? It means to turn away the anger. And Phineas turned away God's anger. And Jesus is saying, I will fulfill the role of Phineas among you. That is our Lord. That is our Savior. He is a great Savior. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. But, and he doesn't say he's going to come and like with some of the others, take them away as a church. They were, he says, there are a faithful group, but you're tolerating this. And if you continue to do it, I will come and I will make war and I will purge. His anger, God's anger will be propitiated. His anger will be turned away in one of two ways. Either our being in Christ by faith and repentance, turning to him, and his anger is gone at that point. That is the gospel, that we have a Savior who is the propitiation for our sins. But for those in the church who hold the teaching of Balaam and who do not repent, he comes and he says, I will judge I will make war against them. I will remove what needs to be removed. Jesus, his parables were full of this. There would be a, a, a day of reckoning, and he was going to come to the church and separate the good from the bad. It's consistent teaching of Christ. He is our great Savior, and he is um, the judge, the one who purifies his church. And so... I hope that we know where to go with this. Don't know our hearts. And from this text, we see you couldn't have seen, we didn't see it in Balaam until it was revealed, right? Till the Lord made that distinction for us. Um, But I hope that this brings a soberness to us, a sense of the fear of God to us, a pure desire to be pure in his sight, I pray that this drives that deeply home in our hearts. Um, I don't want to use this sermon like a hammer to pound you. I want to put the hammer in your hand to go pound any idols that you may find in your life. Um, And throughout the Old Testament, the Lord always said, tear them down, get them out. And those who are zealous for the Lord went, Gideon even in his Weakness at night went and tore down the idols at his father's house. May we do that. May we do that. And may the Lord give us the grace to do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the grace you have given us. I thank you for being our great Savior. Lord, I thank you that you are worthy. The reason that you are the one who will judge. The reason that you are the one who will have a pure church in the end one day is because you are worthy. You can accomplish what we cannot. You can save and we cannot. Lord, I pray that if there are any here who need 
to repent, that they would see the wide open door back home and come running. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.